On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered. And he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you trespasses. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join me in a quick word of prayer here? Father, may the meditation of our hearts and minds be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard this model before, but I believe it's a model that we all kind of share, a philosophy of life that really determines everything that we do. And the model simply reads like this, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. I believe that helps us function in our lives because the older we get, we hate surprises especially unwelcomed ones. So we get better at countering things in. We create bigger financial cushions. We exercise more to handle the unforeseen stress or at least to keep you from getting a heart attack. You do everything in your power to eliminate or prepare yourself against all potential threats to your well-being. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And the thing is, you get so good and used to preparing that you start to forget what it means to hope for the best. You start to forget what it means to hope. The thing is, eliminating all possible risks and problems, um, eliminating all po- risks and problems, but the thing is, risk is what you cannot see. Prepare all you want. Prepare yourself for all sorts of uh, heartaches and relationship blow-ups, but you can't, it won't prepare you for those things. Everybody dies. We accept this fate, a circle of life. 
until it happens to one of your parents, a child, a friend. You might have an idea of what these problems could be like, but you never know until it actually happens. This is why God calls us to live a life of faith, and particularly a life of faith in prayer. It means trusting God when you can't see anything. Because that's what risk is. It's the very thing you can't see after you planned everything out, and it's always going to be there. So what does it mean to live this life by prayer, and by faith and in prayer? And I believe it touches upon three things in our passage today. One is it means to remember. Second, it means to, be, to remove the mountains of our lives. And last of all, what it means to remain steady in prayer, to remain in prayer. Let's look at the first part, remember. The thing is, if the bad parts of history are bound to be repeat itself, right? History is always repeating itself. Then you would think that the natural solution to such a problem is to just have better photographic memory to recall these bad moments to keep them from happening again so that we don't make the same mistakes. But you and I, as we live our lives, we still ask the very same questions. Where did I put my phone? Where are my keys? Do you know where I placed this and that? Or why did I come into this room? I know I had a certain purpose for it, but I forgot. Our memories fail us. I think it's not so much a problem of having selective memory, but more about having selective understanding. Peter, when you think about it, the disciple Peter, he accumulates many memorable moments at following Jesus, all these memorable teachings, memorable miracles of Jesus, and of all those things that Peter remembers, it's a fig tree. Out of everything that Peter could have remembered, he specifically remembers the lesson about the fig tree. Now, granted, this cursing happened the day before. Maybe it's something fresh on Peter's mind. But the thing is, none of the other disciples remember. Something about this event struck a chord with Peter to actually remember that he blurts out in amazement and surprise, saying, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it has withered. Why is Peter so amazed by this? I mean, people let houseplants die all the time, but that doesn't, that doesn't leave us in awe of God's power. Of all the miracles, this one is the least memorable, at least in my point of view. Yet Peter remembers. What's his understanding? What does he understand about this? See, this idea of withering, there's a theme in the Old Testament so if you look at places like Job 18 up here, the, it, it describes the wicked man as described as a tree whose branches have withered and its root is dried up. And you look in other places like Hosea 9.16 where Ephraim is cursed for his lack of faith and his root is going to be dried up and he's going to be barren of fruit. And then you fast forward to the New Testament in Jesus' teaching of the parable of the sower. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus describes superficial faith as seeds that fell on the ground, had no depth of soil, and the sun scorched the seeds and it withered away. The cursing of the fig tree is the unraveling 
of the spiritual condition of God's people. That's what Jesus is pointing out. It's a confrontation. Because the people of God, they did the good things, but they absolutely had no root in God's heart. They were good at paying temple taxes. They were good at offering sacrifices. Um, these things, acts of devotion. But at the very root of it, Jesus says, you are all like this withered fig tree down to its root. You may look leafy, but inside you are barren. That's the critique. That's the criticism. And yet, is this not the struggle of our culture today? We appear good on the outside, but internally it's a different story a lot of times. That we obsess over what catches the eye rather than to take care of the character of the heart. This is what Jesus wants to get at. I remember this time we um, all got lunch together. I think it was at Blaze Pizza or something, and uh, a lot of people from church gathered. And I can't remember who was there or uh, who was there or who said what, but I do remember what was said. I remember this very particular conversation that some of the ladies were, you know, hanging out. Um, and one of the things that they were talking about is a eligible bachelor, a potential, a potential prospect. And the very first question that was asked is. How tall is he? How tall is he? Almost, I almost choked up my pizza, and I, 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 I don't consider this eavesdropping because I was just minding my own business, but you, you guys were talking next to me, and there's no questions of, does he love God? Is he kind to you? Does he treat his mom well? And what's the natural next question? What, what does he do for work? Or translation, how much does he make? Is he tall and how much does he make? You know, based on these two criterias, I think the perfect match for every, every person here is a, a vending machine, if those are the only two criterias. Get all this passive income, they're pretty tall too. You know, the thing is, NYU, they did this study that, um, what fasc a fascinating study at NYU, these sociologists, uh, they did a study on height and the uh, um, condition of marriages, and what they found out is that shorter husbands, shorter men, tend to actually make more stable and enduring marriages. Go figure. That's, that's facts right there. But what would he care about? What catches the eye? rather than the character of the heart. Who cares what the evidence says? We want something that can catch the eye. Guys, we're all family here. We're all family here. I only mentioned this conversation because it gave me something to think about, to reflect upon myself. That if we can be this way in relationships, how much more so with God? You know, around this time last year, I came, right? And I invited my friend to come to this church. Um, and the thing is, it was very sparse that morning. It was like maybe only the back row people came. Like, you know, just imagine that numbers-wise. Very, very sparse. And I remember meeting up with my friend at some social gathering. And, you know, we're all hanging out, having small talk. And then he mentions in this group of random strangers that have no idea who they are. And he says, I went to Pastor Amos's church, but no one was there. 
And I thought to myself, why would anyone come to a place like that? He said this in conversation. Uh, I was like, I got annoyed by this, this statement. Like, don't talk like that. Those are my people now. Right? Why would you mention this small talk? We, didn't, we weren't even talking about church. You just said it randomly. We're like talking about the Lakers. And you say, oh, Pamus' church is small. You know, and like, I was annoyed because it's not proper etiquette, it just seems like, and it's just not the topic of discussion. But there was a small part of me that felt, what if he's right? It was my how tall are you moment. How tall are you? And the thing is, when I come to my senses and when I think about what Jesus says here, it's like, what good is it to have a house, a building full of people, but come with an empty heart? And that's what I want to reflect on. That's what I need the emphasis to be on, not only for myself, but I'm also hoping for you. It's like this. What good is a marriage without connection and love for one another? What good is parenting to provide all the stuff you can imagine for your kids, their experiences and all that, but without nurture, without discipleship, a heart for that? What good is financial security when you always only just long for more? What good is it owning a house without creating a home? What good is having a life but with absolutely no purpose? You can have all the things that look good to the eyes, but to have the things of the heart requires a heart full of the love of God. And friends, this can only be achieved with prayer. It's only achieved through prayer. This is why God's response, or this is why Jesus' response to Peter is in verse 22 have faith in God. Not just any kind of faith but the kind that can remove mountains. <coughs> Second point here, removing mountains. Now, when you think about Jesus' Jesus's response to Peter, it's actually a very odd response. What does faith and prayer have to do with a withered fig tree? And look at what he says in verse 23 with me. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And this sounds like some serious power that Jesus is talking about. All this can happen if you pray with faith. But the thing is, what is the point of moving a mountain? Sure, I will be amazed if you can move Mount Diablo or the Sierra Nevadas into the uh, harbor of San Francisco Bay. I'd be astonished and shocked and terrified that you could possess such a power. But can such a power also pay the bills? Can this power also get your spouse to do more chores around the house? What's Jesus' angle here? Why is he talking about faith that can remove mountains out of your life? The thing about mountains is that they represent power and permanence, right? Power and permanence. And every key moment where God met with his people, they're on a mountaintop. So when you think about when God entered into a covenant with his people in the Old Testament, after he freed them from Egypt, he met them on where? Mount Sinai, a mountain. 
And many people have understood this verse, at least verse 23 and 24, as this, that if you are really faithful to God and you pray like you mean it and you have passionate prayers, then he should be able to give you whatever you ask for. You name it and you'll claim it. But I'll tell you what, many people have prayed like this, only to have the cancer diagnosis not to be favorable, only to still be in pain, only to still be searching for the right results that they want. Maybe some of you are praying for these things, such miracles to remove mountains, only to be still waiting. It messes with your mind and starts messing with your soul. Maybe I lack faith. Maybe that's it. But the thing is, look at verse 23. Up here, Jesus says, this mountain, which means it's a very specific mountain that he's pointing to. And where did Jesus and his disciples just come from previously? They came from the temple And where does the temple sit? It sits on top of Mount Zion. So when Jesus flipped over tables and he cleansed out the the temple uh, of all its uh, money changing and all that, he makes very clear that the people of God have essentially institutionalized God. They just do and say the right things at the temple, but then they go back to their own ways of living. They lack the true heart of worship to God. They lived however they wanted. And this is why back in chapter, uh, verse 17 here, he says, this house, it is not written, my house is called a house of prayer. My house. Think about that phrase, my house. Man, when Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors starts lighting it up on the basketball court against the opposing crowd, does he turn to his home-based based fans and does he say, hmm, this could be my house? Mm, this might be my house. Or does he thunder and pound his chest and let everyone know with zeal, this is my house, my house, my rules. And isn't this what Jesus is doing here? That he's getting away, getting rid of all the institutionalized uh, versions of God and he says, my house is going to be a house of prayer. He's claiming his people back calls them to pray. Jesus is prophesying that there will be an end to this temple system. Gone are the days where his people will just appease him through their sacrifices. Because he looks through all that and he says, this is just a form of control. God, we did our part. We paid the temple tax. We did the sacrifices and all that. Now let's do our thing. But Jesus' call to prayer is about a wholehearted dependence on him. Prayer is the means in which God grows our faith. That's why he's calling us to pray. You know, last week we all, you know, planted some vegetables and flowers over there and we planted it to be a symbol that we need things to grow. We just need to see it sometimes because personally for ourselves, well, I don't know about you, but personally, the growth always seems so slow. And so if you could just see something else grow, it's a little bit of encouragement, you know? And like, 
the plants grew this week. I'm just kidding, it didn't. It still looks the same. There's dirt on top, you can't even tell anything happened at all. And that's sort of like what prayer is like. You pray, and it doesn't look like much. Nothing seems to be happening. But underneath the soil, we know something's at work. You just can't see it. And you constantly have to nurture it to grow. That's what it takes, a little bit at a time, to nurture growth. That's what growing in faith is supposed to be like. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of like, as we, as we um, you know, house these little vegetable plants that's supposed to represent our spiritual growth and all that, I got paranoid about all these squirrels because they always dig up the seeds in our, our garden. And so, you know, I can't have all of us having all these missing seeds. Like, what if that's symbolic of the condition of our church? And I thought, what if that happens? Maybe I'll just plant things in without telling anybody. But I won't lie to you, okay? I won't do that. I thought about these things. We need a win. I asked you last week whether any of you guys made New Year's resolutions and Everyone looked depressed in this room about that. You have no resolutions because 2023 was hard. And so it's kind of like we don't look forward to the next year. Because I feel like every year we start, it kind of feels like we're starting over. Anyone else feel that way? Like we're starting all over. I don't mean in like a fresh, renewing way, but in like a drudgery way. Oh man, I got to figure these things out again. We're starting over. I, uh, Stephen Yoon, he won this uh, global award, global global award for best actor. Man, shout out to Stephen Yoon, the first time as a Korean actor won best male actor for his uh, uh, role on the show TV show called Beef. I'm acting like we're friends. He he doesn't know me, but I was really happy for that moment. And there was something about, it reminded me about one phrase that he would say in this uh, TV show. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's like, in this show, he, his character is always hustling to get ahead. And so there's always these obstacles, whether it's just to make more money, gets over that obstacle. Get revenge over his enemy, gets over that obstacle. Make peace with his enemy, another obstacle. Family issues, obstacle. Making his parents proud. Problem after problem after problem. And after every time he gets over these hurdles, he always says this one thing. I I can't forget it. He says, there's always something. There's always something. This is what I, this is what I realize, mean, by what it feels like we're always starting over. There's always something no matter what your hustle is in life. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Pray. Not because the mountains of your problems will go away so that you might become, uh, that's not the point of prayer, to to make the mountains of your prayer uh, problems go away so that you might, but instead he calls us to pray so that you might become more aware of whose presence goes before you, who truly gets bigger in your life. It's not the problems that are the problem, but that our view of God that is. And every day we're actually starting over. 
But every day we start over, there's new mercies every day. We start over knowing that the God who is the Alpha and the Omega, who has no beginning nor has no ending, calls us to remain praying. But why? Why does he call us to remain praying? If the point is not to get rid of our problems. Last point here. Risk is what you cannot see. There is always something. And because there's always something, one writer put it this way, that the only way that makes life possible is a permanent, intolerable uncertainty, not knowing what comes next. That's what makes life tolerable. Not exactly bedtime tales you tell your kids to help you sleep, right? But terrifyingly true. What good is prayer if we're always going to struggle anyways? Why is it important to God? Why is it so important to God? Look at the last verse, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. So random. So random. Why does he add this element of forgiveness when the whole time we're talking about is prayer and faith? It doesn't fit. He is bringing up our greatest problem here. That's why he talks about forgiveness. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he's putting an end to the practice of offering sacrifices and temple, ta- uh, temple taxes. And both these actions had to do with atonement, right? Forgiveness from God. And so now Jesus comes in and he says, nope, we're not doing that anymore. I w- I'm calling all of us to pray. And so there's a connection here between prayer and forgiveness, that prayer itself, it's not another thing that God is calling his people to do. Rather, prayer is an invitation for us to have a relationship with a God who reconciles himself to you through the means of Christ's sacrifice. Prayer is an act of reconciliation or a reminder that we have been reconciled so that we can actually pray. And no wonder God is calling us to pray. And he adds this element of forgiveness. Because at the end of the day, the real problems of our lives are relational problems. The real problems of our lives are all relational. Why else do you think he talks about the forgiveness forgiveness at the end? God does the most impossible of things reconcile sinners to himself so that we can begin to have the conversations to reconcile with perhaps one another. The greatest relational problem you have out of all all the relationships that you can have is the one with yourself. And you don't just have problems. Jesus is saying, you are the problem And Jesus says, but give me your problems. Let me reconcile you to yourself. Give me your sin. Give me your brokenness. Let me reconcile you. Pray to me. Pray with me. That's our greatest problem. You know, um, 
My daughter, she got her、uh, ears pierced on Christmas, but she also got pink eye. Something we didn't see coming. And like、uh, she was so excited about her ears that we, you know, we we kind of like, are you sure it's gonna hurt? But she was so adamant, I'm gonna get my ears pierced. She went to Claire's and she did it with a smile. Pop, pop, the nails went in and she got her earrings. But then we noticed her face was a little bit puffy and her eyes were watery. And we're like, oh no, she's got pink eye. So I went to the doctors. We got the antibiotics of droplets, and you know, as we're putting in the droplets, we put it in one eye. Oh, Kathy did it, and so one eye, and she starts screaming. And then we're like, we gotta do the other eye too. And she says, I can't, I can't. And we're like, we're like trying to tell her, like it'll be okay. You know, the piercings are far worse than the eye droplets, at least in my perspective. But she won't do it. Finally, I'm like frustrated because it's 30 minutes of trying to tell her and convince her. So I I tell Kathy, you know what? We just have to do it. I'm gonna grab her and I'm gonna open her eyelids open. So we lay her down and she's screaming even more. She says, "I can't breathe." And I, I I held I didn't I didn't make it so that she couldn't breathe, but that's what she was saying. And then I try to open up her little eyelids, but she's got really strong eyelids and I couldn't open them up, and so I I, I had failed. Two hours later, Kathy's just holding her, caressing her. Finally, she gets the other droplet in, and I realize, like, wow,、oh, what a good picture of us. We're always saying, "I can't, I can't, I can't," trying to force ourselves. I can't, I can't, I can't. Not realizing that God is the one that's always reassuring us. He already knows we can't do things. But I'm here for you. He's not getting us to see our problems better. He's getting us to see Him better. That's what prayer is supposed to do. I'll say it again: the struggle of prayer is not that we have deficient prayer lives, but that we have a deficient view of who our God is. His love is steadfast for a reason. Relational problems—they can't be solved. They can only be bared, bared with, carried. And isn't that what our God does for us? He doesn't remove the mountains of our problems. Rather, He sees and shows us how much bigger He is compared to the problems. At the end of the day, we truly have a God who intervenes for us because He pays attention. I always wondered in heaven if we'll actually pray, because I always look at prayer as you know asking God about our problems, telling Him about it, so that He can answer those things. But the thing about heaven is, if you get there, you'll have no more problems, right? Theoretically, so. And if you have no problems, then what's the point of prayer? And all the angels, they sing of God's praises, and you know, there's nothing to ask, but they sing of God's only praises for how good God is. But on this side of eternity, it seems so unnatural for us to offer prayers of blessing to God. And the thing is, you can only possess that kind of heart if you truly know the comfort, if you truly know with comfort to know that someone is actually interceding on your behalf. In heaven, the Bible says in Hebrews seven twenty five, it says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. 
Jesus is praying. He's praying for us to make sure that they know, like, like his prayers are, make sure that they know my sacrifice is truly sufficient for them. Strengthen them, Father, that they, as they go through this trial, comfort them as they mourn, love them as they feel alone. In heaven, Jesus prays for us. And I realize that's why we don't have to pray about our problems in heaven. He's got us, guys. That in all the ways we fail at prayer, there is a good interceder on our behalf that says, don't worry, I got you, I'll cover you. Let me pray for you, just come to me. Just come. You know, I, I wrestle with prayer myself, and sometimes, honestly, sometimes as I pray, I set my 30-minute timer, I, 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 I pray, I pray, I pray, and then I, I fall asleep sometimes. I'm just going to be honest. And like discourages me from praying. But there was this one pastor that, that put it so lovely. It said, it's okay if you fall asleep during prayer because do you ever get angry at your child when your child falls asleep on your lap? You're just glad that he's there. Friends, isn't that, is this not the great comfort of our lives? Though no matter what your problems are, though no matter what that there's always something else is, there's a God that will meet you at every step of the way. There's a God that prays for all the things in your life. He intercedes for us, reconciling us to not only ourselves, but especially to God. And if that is the kind of God that you have, then prepare for the worst, but never forget to always hope for the best because it is truly yet to come. Would you pray with me?